Well, good morning, beloved. If uh, you don't happen to know me, my name is Alan Reeb. I am an elder candidate here at Restoration Road. Uh, and it is my distinct honor and pleasure to um, bring the word and open the word before you and with you this morning. A number of years ago, um, the George Gallup Polling Organization did a nationwide poll across the United States, and their purpose was to kind of get an assessment of the religious life and significance of it in the life of the American people. And upon initial reading, one walked away with a rather favorable opinion. The, the, the poll revealed that there is currently the largest number of people attending church services each week in American history, even more so than in colonial America. There's a very high percentage of people that believe that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God and fully authoritative. A high percentage of people believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. And most people believe that a born-again experience is necessary for entrance into heaven. So as I said, upon initial reading of this survey, one can walk away with a rather favorable opinion until you read the last paragraph in the summary section. The author says, never before has the gospel of Jesus Christ made such inroads into American culture while at the same time making so little difference in how people actually live. The Wall Street Journal, a while ago, had an opinion piece entitled, Old Time Religion, an evangelical revival is sweeping the nation, but with little effect. The author said this, the spirit of religious awakening is once again moving across the land, but unlike a similar great awakening two and a half centuries ago that helped sow the seeds for the American Revolution, the current evangelical revival has so far sowed little except curiosity amongst non-believers and self-doubt amongst many faithful. That's enough to put a theological burr under my saddle. Puts a spiritual stone in my shoe. It seems unfair. It seems not right. It doesn't seem to be my experience at all, but maybe from an outsider, it does have an element of truth. My purpose this morning in bringing up these things is not to remind us or to motivate us to make sure that our lives are lived in such a way that the outside world would look favorably upon us. That's not my desire at all. I don't know that that would ever come true, and that shouldn't be a goal of our behavior anyway, even if it were to be true. A good friend of mine who lives in a major city in the Northwest from his experience, he made this assessment of most of the churches that he knew of in the city that he lives in. He said, most of the services on Sunday morning are just a rock concert followed by a TED Talk. That basically summarizes his experience of churches. Well, the question really needs to be asked among us all, and that's my intention this morning. Is there and should there be a relationship between what we believe and how we behave. And what is that relationship? We find ourselves in a so-called mini-series on the fruit of the Spirit. Nine weeks where we're taking one of the individual fruits that Paul mentions in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, and speaking each week, addressing each one. This is a very familiar portion of Scripture. 
I've kidded that most of us probably have an embroidery on a wall hanging or a, a, a towel in our kitchen with these verses and these uh, attributes, these virtues on them to remind us. It's, a, it's something that you have probably committed to memory, these virtues. And it's my, and has been my challenge through this study is to not forget that this very familiar passage in Galatians, it finds itself in a larger context. It really makes full sense only when that larger context is seen and appreciated. So these verses appear in the fifth chapter of Galatians. And the fifth chapter of Galatians just happens to appear in the whole book of Galatians. So the book of Galatians becomes the context to which we find meaning and added significance when we look at the individual virtues that we have been talking about recently. And so it behooves me to again remind us of the larger picture, of the larger reason why Paul addressed the Galatians the way that he addressed them. And that will help us make more sense and more significance and more relevance of these individual fruits. We don't need to look at them in isolation. You'll remember from previous talks that our understanding of this, these churches in the Galatian regions were started by the Apostle Paul on one of his journeys. And they were started well. He was a minister of the true gospel, and he came as an evangelist with his companions, and he started these healthy churches and set them in order. He gave them great teaching. He selected leaders and trained them and established them, and then he continued his journeys. And it was a period of time later that he heard that there was something amiss in these churches, that although they had started well, they were now embracing a false teaching. He says that you have embraced a false gospel. You, our understanding is not correct. Someone has bewitched you, and it just behooved Paul. He jumped right into it in chapter 1 to correct the errors of their understanding. You see, as we had mentioned before, a group of Judaizers had come behind Paul and had infiltrated the churches that he had started. And they, with their message, had told these new converts that, well, what they believed was okay, but it wasn't enough. They needed to add something to it. They needed to go back and make sure that they were circumcised. They had to make sure that they observed the Sabbath. They had to make sure that there was the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law. All of these added requirements were added to these young churches as evidence, as requirements for their faith. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You have started right, now you need to continue right. What you embraced originally, the true message of the gospel, is that you accepted God's offer of salvation freely. You came to him with an empty cup, as it were, and asked him to fill it up. And then you proceed to live the Christian life in the same way. Don't add to it restrictions and added requirements because that's not the true gospel. That's not where it belongs. Last I looked, we really don't have any issues with circumcision or Sabbath observance or dietary. Those aren't the predominant additions that people come along today and say that this is what you need to add to the gospel message. But heaven knows there's hundreds of other minor, as it were, requirements that we could list as things that people have put on our, 
our to-do list. This is what you need to do as a believer to make sure that you're there. This is the behavior that needs to be present in your life. And Paul would come alongside us and say, no, you're adding to the gospel. In fact, that's not the gospel at all. If you remember, just a few weeks ago, when Pastor Mike started this series on the fruit of the Spirit, he made mention to an article by an author named Paul Tripp. And Paul Tripp makes mention in this article about the fact that we believers today have a condition known as gospel amnesia. We remember, kind of, how we started the Christian walk. We started how it all began. We started how wonderful the feeling of, of forgiveness and restoration and a relationship with God was. We remember coming and hearing that gospel proclaimed and responding to it with faith. But as we've begun to live the Christian life, as we've begun to pro progress and mature, we, we have forgotten how it started. And we, we've, we've kind of added requirements along the way. Well, this is what's required for me to make sure that I'm a believer. This is what is added to the gospel that I once had adhered to. This is now the list of requirements for me to be a good Christian. And maybe, just maybe, you have heard or perceived our study of the fruit of the Spirit as that kind of a checklist. This is the fruit of the Spirit that's supposed to be present in your life, and by golly, you got to keep a scorecard to make sure that it's there. You find yourself like that proverbial Mariner fan in the stadium with a scorecard in front of you, marking down balls and strikes and, and outs and singles and a few runs um, and a few errors. And, and maybe you... You, you have perceived our study of the fruit of the Spirit in that way, where you have this list on your lap, and you're wondering, you're, you're trying to check off in, in vain fashion, all right, I, I have love, I, I have a little bit of joy, oh, shalom is just, it, uh, maybe, and now we come to patience, and it's just like, oh, man, where do I go from here? Well, I want to give us some encouragement this morning. Myself first, and hopefully you, if you'll understand what I want to say. And that is not to keep a scorecard, not to try to put a list of requirements in front of you as necessary things of what proves or disproves your relationship with God. But first and foremost, I want to understand together what it means to accept the gospel and live the gospel to try to not be a people that would be characterized as having gospel amnesia. I want to remind us of the gospel. And not just going back to ancient history to remind us of something that happened in our lives a long time ago, but to remind us of how to live the Christian life today. Because it's the same truth. I've entitled this talk, From Mess to Masterpiece. Because, truth be told, as Corey said, we're all, we've all got mess in our life. All of us have mess. And what God wants to accomplish, what God has accomplished in our lives is truly a masterpiece. It's not that we need to perform, it's not that we need to behave, but it's to discover that masterpiece that God has already created in you and in me. The first thing that I want to talk about is the pattern of fruit. I've gone back and just picked out 
a couple of things that you might have missed. I want to put them together in a way that I hope will be obvious, but I've gone back to Pastor Mike and Pastor Nate's sermons the last couple of weeks and just pulled out a couple of verses of things that they've addressed and I'm putting them, put them together like pieces of this puzzle so that we can see the pattern of this fruit. The first one is about love, 1 John 3, 1. John says, See what sort of love the Father has given to us. Concerning joy, John 15, 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And about peace, John writes in John 14, 27, Peace, Jesus says, I leave with you. My peace I give you. You get it? Did you see it? Did you hear it? Yeah. Something's been given to us. Something has been given on our account, given into our spirit, given into our soul. It isn't something that we've manufactured. It isn't something that we've discovered or dug up. It's not something that we have to go out and make sure that we do. It's been given to us. Paul makes this astounding statement in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Just as you have received, or in the same way that you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your life in Him. There's the gospel. How did our life begin as a believer? We received. We expressed our spiritual poverty. We had nothing to contribute to our salvation. We came before God as a beggar, begging for life. Because I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, I can't discover it, it has to be given to me. That's how the Christian life begins. But Paul says, in the same way that it began, it needs to continue. That's the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit. It's given into our hearts, it's given into our souls. I don't have the love that God requires, but Jesus does. I don't have, I can't manufacture the joy that is required of me. But Jesus can. I can't have this shalom. It's impossible. But Jesus can. So now we come to patience. Oh, I don't have the patience. I can't manufacture this. I can't. It's not within me. It's a bridge too far. But Jesus can. Jesus can. So the pattern of this fruit is beautiful. It's just a beautiful display of the work of God in our hearts and in our lives to give us what is necessary to live the life that he's called us to live. That's where Paul comes into Galatians 5. After reestablishing what the gospel is, he has a very beautiful way of describing, well, it's maybe not that easy because there's a fight, there's a battle going on within you. And that's called your flesh. And the battle of, between your flesh and your spirit is a distinct and discernible battle. Our flesh is self-centered, self-seeking, self-gratifying, self-centered, selfish. And he lists the deeds, the work, the fruit of the flesh. And then he says, but the fruit of the spirit is different. It's very different. And this is the pattern of that fruit to be developed and is expressed in the life of the believer. And so we come to patience this morning, the fourth virtue, the practice of patience. Well, first, let's start with a definition. What is patience? 
the dictionary would say that patience is tolerant and even-tempered perseverance, the capacity for calmly enduring pain, trying situations, and tedious circumstances. There's another English word that's a synonym for patient. It's called long-suffering. It's kind of an old English word. We don't use it very much today, but but it beautiful de- a beautiful way of expressing patience, long suffering, the call to suffer for a long time. Years ago, before the uh, Alaska Canadian Highway was improved and paved the whole way, it was an unimproved dirt gravel journey into the wilderness, and cars and trucks that undertook the journey to make that trip overland through Canada to Alaska had to outfit their vehicles with special equipment, skid plates underneath to keep rocks from puncturing the gas tank and to keep their crankcase from being hit by a rock. And they had to carry multiple spare tires because of the treacherousness of the road. There was an infamous sign that was on the start of this journey um, that notified the drivers of the perils that lie ahead. And the sign said something to the effect of, choose your rut wisely because you'll be in it for several hundred miles. <laughs> That's somewhat true of us as believers. We feel that some behaviors of ours are so ingrained are so part of our personality, are so set in stone that there's just no other way around it. I mean, good luck on that one, preacher. Uh, I just am not that kind of a person, nor will I ever be. I am stuck in my rut. That may be more of your understanding of the nature of God than it is of yourself. For true transformation is possible. But the practice of patience in the life of a believer needs to be known and understood. For me, one of the clearest expressions of my impatience comes when I'm behind the wheel of my vehicle. I don't like the way other people drive many times. (laughs) And it expresses itself quite often. And if I stop long enough to realize, well, what's really happening here when a driver in front of me is going two or three miles an hour below the speed limit, I would rather have them do two or three miles an hour more than the speed limit. Bottom line, I'm really saying that, well, my time is more important than your time. It's a pride issue. It's a pride issue. I know how to do things better than you do. My schedule is more important than your schedule. Therefore, I have the right to be impatient with you. Another way our, my, my, our flesh is expressed is looking at what we complain about. What do we complain about? It was in 1995, my wife and I were on a two-week mission trip to Russia. And we were helping out in a Bible school there, help teaching uh, a Bible school amongst uh, Russian nationals. And we went to church in St. Petersburg one Sunday night. Brand new infant church, just getting started. And they were meeting in a grade school. And we were there in February, and it was pretty cold in St. Petersburg, Russia, in February. 
And this church had rented a room in this grade school to meet together on a Sunday night. Well, most schools that I know of, especially in Russia, they don't heat the buildings on weekends when no one's there. But the church met in a, in a school room. Well, it wasn't heated, uh, maybe 45 or 50 degrees, so it was cold, and everyone kept their coats on. But that wasn't the only thing unique about this classroom. It was a classroom for, I think, second or third grade students. And so all of the chairs in this classroom were those little itty-bitty chairs that you see downstairs. Great for a third grader, not so nice for adults. All of these people gathered, sitting in these little chairs, thrilled to be gathering together. No complaints. It was cold. It was, you could see your breath, but no complaints. They were just thrilled. And that was really has been a pivotal developmental mindset in me to remember that church gathering in St. Petersburg in February in that grade school. They chose not to complain about things that I would readily complain about. And so what was most important to them was gathering as a group of believers to hear the word of God proclaimed. What do I find myself complaining about? What do you complain about? Does that reveal our flesh self-centeredness and our lack of patience toward life? Jesus, I think, was the ultimate and consummate example and um, revealer of, of a patient life, especially as he dealt with his disciples. He chose 12 men to be with him for three years. They were with him for 24-7, 365. They slept with each other, they walked with each other, they ate with each other, they probably argued many times with each other. These group of men were with Jesus as he healed the blind man, as he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, as he gave the Sermon on the Mount, as he interacted with the scribes and the Pharisees. He was with, they were with him when he walked on the water, when he caused miracles to happen. And you read the scriptures, you read the gospels, and you read the accounts of Jesus' dealings, interactions with his disciples. And when you read, they were stopped for the night and gathered around a campfire or eating a meal together, their conversations would often go to, well, who do you think is the greatest among us? Hey, Bartholomew, <laughs> who's going to sit at the right hand? And so these, these interactions repetitively appear throughout the Gospels. And you just think, Jesus has incredible patience with these men. Who wouldn't give their right hand to spend a week with Jesus 24-7 to see what he did and hear what he did and hear what he said? And here these men were with him for three years and still didn't quite get the picture. Still were coming along and Jesus was patient, patient with them. Long-suffering. Greg and Kathy Moore, they were here at the first service. They have a daughter that's gone off the rails, and they have found themselves now parenting their daughter's three, sometimes four children. Again, two, they didn't expect to parent when they hit their retirement years, but they are now parenting, and joyfully so, because God has put within them great long-suffering. Roberto and Susan Alps, you know them. They haven't been here for almost three years. Roberto couldn't go forward to 
have communion without stopping to hug three or four people along the way. Susan's been dealing with cancer, treatment after treatment after treatment, and can't come to a community gathering as much as she would long to, but she has to isolate. Long-suffering has been deposited into their account. Neil Wheeler has just undergone his fourth soldier, sol, s- shoulder surgery for rotator cuff. Fourth! You know the recovery time of that. If you've had one or known someone who's had one, he's had four. God has put into his account long-suffering. And these are just examples from my own road group. You have countless examples of others, I'm sure, of people who have been called by, for, for whatever reason, God has given them a station in life that demands long-suffering. But not only does he demand it, he gives it. He doesn't ask them, here's the hurdle, jump over it. No, my grace is sufficient for you, he says. My grace will give you what is necessary to accomplish what I've called you to do. So we've seen the pattern of fruit, that God gives this into our account. We've seen the practice of patience through numerous examples of defining what it is. And lastly, let's talk about the possibility of transformation. The possibility of transformation. You and I find ourselves in a culture, in a society, that has answers for every problem. And most of it includes, well, a therapy sessions or a counselor sessions or drug regiment all kinds of things, and I am in no way, shape, matter, or form disparaging any of those for one's personal struggles. But if you're hearing what I'm saying this morning, you just might have the opinion that that's fine for you. Oh, that makes for a great sermon, but man, I live in the real world. This is not something that I really believe is possible. This personal transformation through a spiritual rebirth and a spiritual infilling of God's Spirit, uh uh-uh, uh-uh, I have other ways to accomplish what I think is important in life. So if you react that way, I don't not believe it, but I want you to hear a couple of examples that are true that God is capable, and not just capable, willing to completely transform a life on his own power. We who are believers have accepted the gospel message when we heard it. We believe that God was able to save our sin-sick soul. We believe that God was able to forgive us of our sins, past, present, and future. We believe that God was able to give us what was necessary to spend eternity with him. That is not debated. All of us have accepted, those of us who call ourselves Christians have accepted that gospel message. But then when we come to this list of fruit, this list of Christian virtue, we walk away sometimes saying, that's just too far, that's too much. I can accept on the one hand eternal life and believe that God is capable of saving my soul for eternity, but on the other hand, well, He's just not capable of producing the virtue of patience in me. No, that's not, I'm not going to give him the right to do that. There's a disconnect there. Let me bring them together. I love the story in Luke chapter 19. 
Jesus, by this time in his public ministry, was pretty well known. He was gathering crowds around him everywhere he went. One, people were curious about the miracle worker that was coming to town. And two, they wanted to hear these wonderful sermons that he gave. And so he happened in this chapter of Luke 19 to go to Jericho. And as was custom, there were large crowds surrounding him as he walked up and down the streets of Jericho. As he was leaving town, a chief tax collector wanted a look at this miracle-working man. He was a chief tax collector. He just wasn't an ordinary tax collector. He was the superintendent of tax collectors. Super scorned, super hated, super forlorn. But he had heard that Jesus was coming and wanted a look. So, as the entourage was going down the street, he climbed a tree to get a better look, and Jesus came and stopped. You know the story of Zacchaeus. And Jesus said, you come down. Why? I'm going to eat with you this afternoon for lunch. Okay. And they go off to Zacchaeus' house, and they have lunch. And they're dining together. All of a sudden, Zacchaeus pops up. He says, if I have stolen anything from anybody, I will give them back fourfold. If I have wronged anybody, if I have overcollected taxes, if I have, if, if whatever I have done, I will make it up tenfold. And Jesus is just smiling from ear. You can just see this scene. Don't just leave it in the kids' department downstairs. Put some flesh and bones on this scene as Zacchaeus is just exuberant in his, his newfound life that he has. It doesn't say that Jesus said anything to him about believe in me and that you will have the fountain of living water. No, he's just dining with him. But the presence of Jesus in and of itself was enough to transform this life. And he is expressing it through these ways. Another story about an English sailor just strikes a chord with me. John was 22 years old and he found himself on the deck of an English merchant ship. The year was 1746, long before there was steam power. It was all by wind. He found himself on this ship in the North Atlantic during a raging storm, 80-mile-an-hour winds and 30-foot seas. The wind had all but broken the masts and the sails off of the ship, and the waves coming over the bow were wreaking havoc with the sailors. In fact, John had seen several of his shipmates washed overboard during this storm. So he lashed himself with ropes to the deck as he was there in charge of the helm, trying to keep the ship pointed in the direction of the waves. And during this turmoil, during this storm, it was representative of the battle that was going on in his spirit. And he started to reflect upon his long-lived life of 22 years and the much life that he had lived for 22 years. And he found himself asking these perplexing questions. Could God ever forgive the rebellion that's been in my heart, the scorn and the hatred that I've had for anything pertaining to God? You see, John, many years earlier, had a good start to life. His dad was a sea captain in the English uh, merchant ships, and his wife was a godly Christian lady. She had reared young John with much love and admiration and instructed him with Bible stories and prayer and hymns and would often tell him, John, you will someday be an important minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Well, when he was seven years old, his mom died suddenly. His dad remarried, and his stepmom was much different than his original mom. She cared very little, if anything, about family life, cared nothing about the Lord, and basically left John on his own volition. He soon rebelled against home life and, and started hanging out with bad, influential people in town and found himself hating. He found himself hating home life and hating anything to do with God and the church. About 12 years old, he asked his dad if he could come on his dad's ship and start his life as a seaman. And his dad said, okay, and we'll try it out. So he became a cabin boy on his dad's merchant ship. He found that, that sea life um, was, an, was, was a, uh, an appreciable life. He enjoyed it, and he excelled at it. He was skilled at doing what he was asked to do. So as his skill um, increased, he found other employment outside of his dad's um, ship, and he became a seaman. Well, he developed and, and adhered to the life of the seaman with, 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 with great enthusiasm. Um, he found himself as being the gang leader, the, the, the leader uh, many times of ships that uh, were made up of seamen that rebelled against any form of authority, especially sea captains or, or those that were in charge of their well-being on the, on the ships. The way that the ship captains dealt with insubordination then was to uh, administer public flogging. And John had uh, several times endured a, public, a severe public flogging because of his insubordination. He went from merchant ship to merchant ship and soon found himself um, employed in the slave trade, the ships that went back to Africa and harvested uh, men, women, and children, enslaved them in cabins in the lower decks of these ships and brought them over to the New World and made repetitive trips back and forth. And he was very good at what he was doing. One particular captain that he um, had a very antagonistic relationship with um, ended up uh, flogging him, and he escaped this, cap this captain's employment while he was in Africa and went to work for one of the slave harvesters in Africa and ultimately becoming enslaved himself in the trade that he was employing. His dad, curious about the welfare of his son, had heard that he was in Africa and asked several ship captains on their trips to Africa to inquire about my son and see what he is up to and about his welfare. One captain in particular ran across him and said, your dad is very curious and mindful of your welfare and would like you to come back to England if it's possible. So he did. He got on, sh on that merchant ship, the Greyhound, and was en route back to England when he encountered the storm. When his watch on that helm was over, he went below deck and he found a Bible. And he just opened it at random to Luke chapter 11 and read the verse that said, If you, being evil fathers, know how to give good gifts to your son, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those of you who ask? And he prayed then and there, God, if you're true, if you're right, if, you're, if this word that I've read is accurate, and if you'll receive me into your family, I confess my sin, I confess my rebellion, I confess my wayward ways, and I ask you for, to forgive me. The ship ultimately made its way back to England, and they've landed in a safe harbor. He 
exited that ship a transformed man. He immediately went to church and through a period of time started to receive communion and was baptized and started learning about theology and felt the call to ministry and accepted the pastoral uh, pastorship at a small church north of London in Olenny, England. He thrived as a pastor in the small um, blue-collar working-class town and found himself really attracted to the children of the town and started numerous children ministries toward the children of this town and often would find them themselves um, ministering to hundreds of children at a time. They loved hearing his stories of the high seas and of his making of paper boats and the, uh, the stories and songs that he would sing. You see, he was a, uh, a poet in his heart. And this man um, would, would write new hymns, new songs. Each week his church met. And you know many of his songs. John Newton's most famous song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. You see, personal transformation is just not something that's oh, pie-in-the-sky theory. It's just not, oh, it's for a super spiritual class of people who live life on a different plane than me. It's not just for, oh, the pastors or the theologians or the deacons or the elders. No, no. Transformation is possible for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that does it. He is the one that will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So as we look at these fruits, we're halfway through the list. More to come. Realize the pattern of fruit. God instills within our spirit the virtues necessary to accomplish what he's asking us to do. Realize the practice of patience. That's our virtue this week. Understand our flesh. Understand its influence. Understand its power. But understand that the power of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit is stronger, more relevant, and more accomplishable than our flesh. And realize the possibility of transformation. Yes, you and I can walk in newness of life. We are called to a high calling. We are called to a high standard. But it's not a hurdle we need to jump over in our own strength. It is a hurdle we can only jump over in the strength that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, thank you for the fact that we have new life. Thank you that we are born again. Thank you that you've called us into your family. We are your elect. We are in Christ. We are endowed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you that your spirit is active and alive and working in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you that it accomplishes what you want us to accomplish. God, give us the ability, I pray, to see our desperate need, not just for salvation, but the ongoing ministry of the gospel in our lives, the ongoing task of believing that God is able to do the impossible, that you're able to accomplish your will in us, that you are capable to bring glory to yourself in our lives because of Jesus' work in us to transform us into his likeness. Thank you for this group of brothers and sisters that is on life's journey together. We want to encourage each other and motivate each other and stir one another for love and good deeds. May that be our takeaway this morning, that we know a good God. We know a gracious God. We know a giving God. 
That's the God who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.